0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: There's this great moment in the classic movie Patton where the US General's riding a jeep into Sicily during World War II and Patton says to his aide that the Americans are just the latest intruders on an island that's been invaded by the ancient Greeks, the Carthaginians, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Arabs and the Normans. Sicily is like a layer cake of history going back thousands of years. And people who want to feel a glimmer of the ancient world will often head to places like Rome or Jerusalem or Athens, but Catherine Pangonis likes to go to the other cities on the Mediterranean, cities that are mentioned repeatedly in the Bible or in other ancient texts. But these are places that tourists rarely visit. In fact, most people might not even be aware these forgotten cities still exist. Catherine Pangonis is a UK historian and author who's travelled round the Mediterranean Sea that touches the shores of three continents. She's walked on the stones of ancient Antioch, Syracuse, Carthage and the Phoenician city of Tyre. At one time, these cities were famed for their beauty and wealth and for their majesty. They were centres of art and trade and religion where people from all over the ancient world could gather. Each of these great and powerful cities has been worn down over the last few thousand years by war and earthquakes and neglect, but they still carry magical resonance for Catherine. Catherine Pangonis' book is called Twilight Cities, Lost Capitals of the Mediterranean. Hi, Catherine.
0: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
1: Someone looking at a map of the Mediterranean world might imagine that the Mediterranean is something that holds Europe and Asia and Africa apart. But that's that's not how people in the ancient world saw it, is it?
0: No, and I don't think it's how we should see it now. I think the sea the Mediterranean Sea is absolutely a force of connection and it's a conduit of trade and cultural exchange. And it always has been, you know, from the point of view of of archeologists and historians, you know, I mean, archeologists love their pottery and you find pottery in Europe that came from the shores of Asia and North Africa and vice versa. And of course the sea is scattered with islands and on the, and these islands, in particular, you've mentioned Sicily, these islands become crossing places and stepping stones across this sea. So I think really, both in terms of antiquity and the modern day, we should try and see the sea more of a force of connection than than something divisive because it has you know it's, it's formed the shared horizons of so many cultures since the dawn of history.
1: You write that your introduction to these cities or indeed your fascination with these cities began quite some years ago, when you had a kind of a a very dramatic and drenching introduction to Sicily. Can you tell that story, please?
0: Yeah, it really is where it all started. I mean, I'm from London. You know, I grew up with a lot of kids around me going on holidays to Mediterranean places, and my family just didn't really do that. My first time going to the Med was with my sailing team from uni. We were sort of given a job to bring a boat from one, one part of Sicily to another, and uh you know we weren't the most responsible team so we had so (laughs) many so many issues on the way with this poor boat um the gut, it really got trashed. We tore the mainsail, we lost the end. I mean, it wasn't just our fault. I mean, the ancient Greeks, you've, you'll be familiar, I think, with Scylla and Charybdis, you know, this mythical monster and clashing and whirlpool just off the coast of Sicily. And the Greeks had this very helpful habit of situating gods and monsters in dangerous places. So Sicily has always been a very difficult region to sail in. And we just sort of thought you know going on sort of a happy go lucky sailing trip we didn't really quite take all these these issues the the tempestuous nature of the winds the changeability of conditions into account and eventually it ended up with us sort of limping into the harbour of Syracuse with a torn mainsail, no anchor, broken engine, sort of des- oh, desperate, yeah, desperate to find a technician and a sail mender. And I was furious with everyone on the boat. We were all furious with each other, as only sort of three days in a storm at sea can do. And I was blown away by what I found. You know, I sort of stumbled off the boat, sort of hungry, frustrated whatever and i just looked up and i saw this city that was sort of glowing gold because it was it was sunset when we arrived and i had no idea what to expect and just walking through you just suddenly became aware all these layers of history that are sort of written in the architecture and the stones of this place and all these different languages you still hear in the streets, and it just, um, yeah, it made it, that's what made me want to go and do sort of my master's focusing on Mediterranean history um, and led to this book eventually.
1: When we use the word city in ancient terms, what do we mean by an ancient city? Because these are much smaller cities or settlements or establishments than the cities we live in today.
0: Yeah, much smaller, much, much smaller. And I think, you know, it's only in the last, like, 50 years, certainly less than a century, that humans can claim to be more urban than rural. We think of antiquity as the world being dominated by cities, but we have to remember that only about 10% of the global population lived in them. And I think, you know, the reason cities loom large in our minds, despite being, you know, a very different beast to what they are now, is because they were the centre of ideas and politics. And it's also where rulers could make the marks of their empire. So, you know, architecture was a very important tool of imperial propaganda. Building impressive temples showed power, showed continuity, this sort of thing. So cities were very important ideologically, but they weren't sort of the huge urban sprawls that we that we know today.
1: Even the biggest cities of the ancient world, like Rome, was a million people at its peak. That's all. That's smaller mm. than Adelaide's population today, <laughs> which seems extraordinary to me. But I suppose this was a city a place with a temple and walls, for example, or, and some kind of bureaucracy at the heart of it?
0: I mean, it varies, different cultures and different time periods. But yes, broadly speaking, I would say, I mean, an ancient city, they focus around sort of a major temple complex at the centre and they're usually fortified in some way because there's, there's a lot of sieges that happen mm-hmm. to cities in the ancient world and, and walls walls really help with that.
1: Your book starts with the impossibly ancient city of Tyre, or Tyre, as you say the French call it, on the Mediterranean. Where is this city on today's map and what does it look like today, Catherine?
0: It's in about as far south as you can go in modern day Lebanon, very near the blue line, the sort of UN monitored boundary between Israeli Lebanese territories. So, sort of about as far east in the Mediterranean as you can go. And it sits on this peninsula, so that it juts out from the coastline of Lebanon into the Mediterranean. Because when Thai was founded in antiquity, it was on an island. And for reasons I hope we'll come to, it eventually became connected to the mainland. But it didn't start this way. And so today, Tyre is an urban sprawl. It's not only, it doesn't occupy just the land that was once the island, but it spreads onto the mainland now. But my favourite part of Tyre is that, that area that was the island, the ancient city that juts out into the sea. And when you're there, you still very much feel like you're standing on an island, because even though it's connected to the mainland now, the sea is around you on the three sides. Um, And the sea is a huge part of Tyre's identity, both in antiquity and the modern day. Now you have spatterings of high-rises and you have the marks of civilizations that came later. You have buildings from the Crusader period, from the Ottoman period. You have buildings that were destroyed by the Mamluks. And indeed, a lot of the ancient buildings of Roman Tyre and of medieval Tyre were pulled down and the stones were used for more modern buildings. So it's sort of a a hickledy-pickledy... Landscape of different civilizations. You know, Roman columns and Byzantine columns sticking out of the sea. Um, you go for a drink in a beach bar, and there'll be a Byzantine column being used as a, as a chair or a bench or something. That the the antiquity is
1: everywhere. You mentioned uh, the the columns there. One of the most striking things to read is that one of the best ways to experience the ancient world is to go to the beach and go for a swim with some goggles on. What sort of things did you see when you went below the waves off the beach of Tyre?
0: Well, columns. The columns, are the impressive ones, because they are so so clear, and it's so obvious what they are. And there's this whole area, um, just off the coast, which archaeologists know as the uh, the submerged quarter. And there's this archaeological site called Elmina, which is the which is basically the centre of Roman Tyre, the Roman metropolis. And it has this gorgeous white processional road, flanked by colonnades, that leads out to the sea, and it's beautiful. But in antiquity, that road went even further to this other quarter of the city which is now under the sea and you can swim over those ruins i won't lie it's not recognizable as a city you know you're not sw- it's not sort of like swimming around a shipwreck and you can see different rooms it's not you know it's it's been under the sea for th- for thousands of years so but you can, see, you can see traces of walls, you can see traces of columns. Um, further along, you can see the jetty stones that made up the Phoenician harbour that where the Phoenicians launched their ships from. And it's all very close to the surface. You know, you don't really need scuba equipment just to take a look. And that's sort of what's amazing.
1: The ancient Phoenicians were the people who built the city of Tyre and they came to power sometime around the Babylonian age. It's that old. And they're mentioned and the city is cursed in the Old Testament. What mm. made the people of Tyre so distinctive for their time?
0: It's very difficult to say much with absolute certainty about the Phoenicians. And there's even this big debate about whether we should even use the term Phoenician to, for this civilization collectively, because they never identified as Phoenicians. They would have identified as men of Tyre or men of Sidon or men of Arawad, these different Phoenician settlements up and down the Lebanese coast. But what made them distinctive was they were famous as master craftsmen. So you've, you've mentioned the Old Testament. Sort of the golden age of Tyre comes under King Hiram in the sort of first millennium BC. And... Hiram is recorded as sending uh, architects and craftsmen and skilled weavers and dyers to Solomon in Israel. So they had this relationship of exchange with the kings of Israel. And when Solomon wanted to build his temple, he asked for architects from Tyre. So they were known as these master craftsmen and architects. But more than that, they were the great traders of the ancient world. So Tyre was the mother of these trade routes that crisscrossed the Mediterranean. And the Phoenicians were not conquerors. So a lot, of, uh, you know, a lot of the time when we think about the civilizations and empires of antiquity, we think, yeah, of empires, of conquest, of, of warring civilizations. The Phoenicians were traders and colonizers and they were master mariners they built these phenomenally fast ships out of cedar wood that they harvested from Mount Lebanon and they built the navies of ancient Egypt and other civilizations as well but for themselves they traded and they sailed right across the Mediterranean and beyond beyond the rock of Gibraltar pillars of Hercules out into the Atlantic and they established colonies in so many places across the Mediterranean Um, you'd be surprised you know many Mediterranean cities you may have visited they may well have Phoenician roots they're just as sort of you know Malaga has Phoenician roots there are cities which were founded by the Phoenicians in Sicily, in Sardinia, in France, all around, and most famously, of course, in North Africa and in Spain, Carthage and Cadiz. So, yeah, they were known as the great traders of the ancient world.
1: The other thing they were known for is the owners of the colour purple.
0: Yes, indeed, indeed. The Tyrians harvested this purple dye from these sea snails known as the murex, It was an incredibly valuable commodity, and as we know, purple is now the imperial colour. That originally came from Tyre, that dye, and Tyrian purple was one of their major industries and like, their signature product down the generations. One of the most striking sarcophagi in Tyre today is this beautifully well-preserved sarcophagus from the Byzantine period, and it's decorated with fish scales and what sort of looks like a Medusa head, and the the epitaph on it is Antipater the Murex fisherman. And this is not a poor man, and this is from the Byzantine period. (laughs) So clearly, you know, he's he's a sort of Murex tycoon, and that's existing till the Byzantine period.
1: Can you imagine what an ancient sailor would have seen sailing into the harbour of Tyre some 3,000 years ago, Catherine?
0: Well, I think he'd have had his, his socks knocked off. One of the main legacies of Tyre in literature, and it is a much mythologised, much written about place, is the beauty of this city. And, you know, from Egyptian, you know, from the Anastasi papyrus to later sources, they describe Tyre as a city in the sea with these white stone walls that rise directly out of the waves. So it's clearly an island which they've built these sort of, I mean, I imagine it a little bit like I hope, I imagine it looked a little bit like Carcassonne in Southwest France. Actually, the sort of perfectly round, beautiful city with these monumental walls, but rising out of the sea, not on land. So I think it would have been incredible to behold, and I think also just highly sophisticated to the eyes of an ancient sailor, because it was one of the great, har- the great trading ports, the great harbors of antiquity. So I think that
1: would have just been a lot to admire. It began its life as an island city, a kind of a citadel, just directly off the coast. You mentioned there it was connected to the mainland. Tell me how Alexander the Great was the key figure here in connecting Tyre to the mainland.
0: Yes, I mean, Alexander, you know, his reputation certainly preceded him when he arrived in Tyre, and it's lived on till now. So I don't need to introduce him too much. But suffice to say, he's a guy who didn't really like to take no for an answer. (laughs) And he was leading this monumental conquest you know, from Macedonia across, I mean, across Europe and the Middle East, and he's eventually going to get as far as India. And as he's sort of doing battle with the Persians, he sweeps down the Levantine coast and he takes, with very little resistance, all the coastal cities, all the Phoenician cities. They all submit to him. But Tyre is sort of a fly in the ointment, if you like, because... It's a much more logistically challenging city to capture. Why is this? It's on an island and it has these monumental walls and this amazing navy. And Alexander at this point does not have a massive navy assembled. And he's got an amazing land army, which is, you know, a dab hand at siege warfare. But how is he going to surround a city and cut it off from trade supplies when first it's the great trading power of the age and also you know his guys can't get there you know there's this, there's this water to cross so you know he uh, and you know the tyrians don't really want to go to war with alexander the great either they're sensible people so they try and sort of you know flatter him they send him a crown of gold they they you know, make all these positive noises like let's work together let's cooperate like we're on your side and alexander says sure but i want to come and make a i want to come and make a sacrifice at the temple of heracles melcart And this is a very loaded request because only the kings of Tyre make sacrifices in this temple. And it's a very famous temple. You know, Herodotus famously travelled to Tyre explicitly just to, you know, to see this temple because it was, you know, the word of its beauty had travelled. So it's a big deal. And the Tyrians say to Alexander... Mm, no sorry uh, can, temples not available for sacrifice right now but we'd love it if you made a sacrifice why don't you do it in this other lovely temple on the mainland <laughs> um but that that's not going to cut the mustard with alexander and and so he decides right in you know shots fired insults given resistance detected i've got to take this place and eventually the strategy he takes he commands his army to pull down another settlement on the coast so put to you know destroy the buildings and use the stones from those buildings to fill in the sea between the mainland and the island. It's about half a mile stretch of sea, and he says we're we're going to connect it to the mainland. We're going to make a land bridge, a mole. And so you know, they're constructing
1: against- this, but aren't they coming under like in- incredible arrow fire and and ballistic missiles being launched from the walls of Tyre as they're trying to build this land bridge?
0: Well, at first, no, because in the first step, the first stages of it they're a bit too far for the arrow fire, right? And the sea is quite shallow. So I think when it starts, they're like, right, we thought this was crazy, but actually it seems to be working. But yes, you're completely right. As the bridge extends and they get closer and closer to the, you know, the fortified city with the soldiers inside it, they are coming under, you know, sort of heavy arrow file, missile fire. You know, the Tyrians send fire ships. They put up a very fierce resistance. Alexander has to build a palisade wall along the mole. He builds siege towers to protect them. But the time, the Tyrians burn this all down. They 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 send fire. They send old sort of horse transport ships loaded with burning oil and stuff to crash into. So it's 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 big drama. This is probably one of the most visually striking and bizarre sieges of antiquity. But against the odds, Alexander does succeed in completing this bridge, and he also calls up some naval support from recently conquered areas, and he does succeed in taking Tyre eventually. And the mole never is destroyed. You know, it's 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 added to. It silts up. You know, and the, and it, it permanently connects Tyre to the mainland, which does fundamentally mark a change in its identity and its independence.
1: So when people walk to that outpost, they're walking across stones laid by the army of Alexander the Great. That's extraordinary. Uh, Tyre, it seems, was absorbed into so many other great empires by force or by coercion or by, by whatever means. But During this period, did it manage to keep something of its distinctive character and its independence under these great powers it lived under?
0: So it certainly did. Um, And I think, you know, the way I would look at it is in these two points of continuity that we've already touched on. One is the worship of Melkart, which I'll come back to in a second, the mythical founder of the city. And also in the purple trade, that's another great example, because this is something that is distinctly Tyrian. And trade in purple, despite multiple conquests by the Babylonians, by the Assyrians, by the Macedonians, by the Romans, this trade continues. And this is a mark of identity. But, you know, that's just good economic sense. Of course, everyone wants to keep trading this valuable commodity. But also their reputation for seafaring continues. So, you know, part of the reason Alexander wants to capture Tyre is that it's still famed as this this naval hub and hub of trade. And he wants that on his side. He doesn't want that to be able to back up the Persians and so on and so forth. But the the main mark of continuity, even through to the Roman period, I would say, is worship of Heracles Melkart. And obviously Heracles is a figure, Hercules Heracles is a figure in the Greek and Roman pantheon as well. He's a demigod. But the worship of this figure in Tyre is very much conflated with the ancient Phoenician god Melkart, who founded Tyre. And the depictions you know, of Heracles Melkart aren't the Heracles of Greek mythology With a lion's skin and a big club, they are the Phoenician god Melkart, this sort of major deity. More often, and he's more often depicted clad in like a loincloth Phoenician costume or whatever than he is in the traditional trappings of Pericles. And this is the sense that the cult of Melkart and religion was so strong in Tyre that it couldn't just be written off. And you know, even into the Roman period, it's truly bizarre. They've recently discovered a new temple in Tyre. And what's really bizarre about it is it's built in the Canaanite the Phoenician style this is not built in the shape and traditional layout of a Roman temple oh. but it's a temple that the Romans was built under Roman rule but in the traditional Phoenician style so the fact that this is continuing down does show that Tyre is retaining a strong certainly strong parts of its identity
1: as you said the Phoenicians of Tyre went around and created these daughter cities around the Mediterranean and, of course, the most important one of them was the city of Carthage and that's the second city you've written about and you visit visited as well. And it's now in modern-day Tunisia in North Africa. There's a foundation story around the city of Carthage that goes back to the Aeneid, the Roman classic by Virgil, where it tells the story of the founder, the woman Dido, who was forced to flee her home in Tyre after her rich husband was murdered by her brother. And it relates how she escaped to North Africa, where she founds Carthage. Then Aeneas shows up and the gods contrive to make them lovers by forcing them to shelter Mm -hmm. from a thunderstorm in a cave. But then tragically Aeneas is reminded that he's got to go off and go off to found the city of Rome and in the legend he dumps Dido and she kills herself in despair now that's one version that's the version most people would be familiar with if they're familiar with this story of Dido and Aeneas at all but you found that the older version of this story there's another version of this story an older one that's richer and more fun how does this older version work Catherine?
0: Yeah, so it follows the same original trajectory. Dido is a... I mean, she's known as Alyssa, which is a Phoenician name. I might... I'm going to move between the two. When I say Alyssa, I mean Dido, Dido, Alyssa, la, la, la. Um, dido elissa is a phoenician princess who as you say husband's killed by her brother and you know she they were twins actually she and her brother were twins and i think her brother became jealous of the wealth of dido's husband and dido's husband was the high priest of melkart and he so he was a very prominent figure in the city and i think the brother felt threatened by this and he wants his wealth so he kills him to get the gold um but he's hidden the gold and the ghost visits dido and says Baby, you're not safe, you've got to go, he wants the gold, I'll tell you where it is. So Alyssa Dido goes and gets the gold, she d- does there's some subterfuge. she tricks her brother into thinking she's throwing the gold in the sea, so he stops to look for it, but really... She sails off with the gold, escapes, picks up some women, maybe by force, maybe not in Cyprus, to come with her and her male entourage. And they set out to found a new city and they come to Carthage. And they try to, they come to the coast of North Africa. It's not quite called Carthage. Carthage is just a Phoenician for kartadash, which means new city. So they're there to found a new city. And they sort of negotiate with the local. Uh, chiefs lords landowners rulers of, the, of this this area of land in north africa and they sort of sneer at them and say well you can have whatever land you can cover with this oxhide and he gives her an oxhide thinking haha you'll get three square meters max um, but what dido does in the myth is she sits down and she shreds the hide into a long ribbon and she lays this ribbon around the base of bursa hill and 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 they're so sort of wowed by her trickery, sort of Penelope-esque sort of cleverness, subterfuge <laughs> that they say, Oh, go on then have the hill. So she founds her she founds right. her new empire on Bursa mm. Hill and on the top of it is built the religious centre, you know, the temp- the temples to the Phoenician gods, it's all going very well. Aeneas never shows up in this version of the myth. I mean that that is that's that's the traditionally he held but then in the in the Roman the Latin version peddled by Virgil Aeneas then rocks up and as you say they fall in love and she becomes completely you know she lays her kingdom at his feet. She says I'll do anything if you stay with me you will be the king of Carthage you will have everything I've built la la la. Really prostrates herself before him and begs him to stay. Aeneas is of all the greek heroes he's he's a warrior not a warrior i would say and he's you know he's spending all his time being anxious about his fate and his destiny and he's also a pretty reprehensible character you know leaving his wife to burn in troy he's a cad he's a cad yeah cad yeah let's 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 call the spade a spade anyway i mean Mm -hmm. he's a he's a slippery fish is this aeneas and then he if you know as you say he's he he goes off to found rome he leaves dido and she kills herself this is, as you say, the, the more popular version. But in the other version, this doesn't happen. Aeneas doesn't even show up. The, the timelines don't match. Um, and Dido instead just rules as an independent queen, honouring her dead husband's memory, the husband that was killed back in Tyre. She doesn't want to marry again. And eventually she comes under pressure by sort of you know her council, who say, you know, we need you to marry again to an, another local lord to sort of solidify an alliance and do something for Carthage and she says no i don't want to i i want to honor my husband's memory and i want to rule single and they say well no we're not having that that's hugely selfish you know you've got to do this for your for your city so she says fine fine but i'm going to I'm going to make some sacrifices to my husband's memory first. And they're like, yes, yes, whatever, get on with it, get on with it. And she builds this great pyre and she starts, she's burning the animal sacrifices and then she throws herself into the flames. So wow, wow, the that's pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> well, it still ends. Dido, seems, yeah. you know, self-immolation has a long and very current history in Tunisia. The story of Dido always ends in self-immolation. But whether, you know, in one version she's sort of, a love slave you know who just you know it's quite it's 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 human and it, she's a sympathetic character but it's ultimately quite pathetic you know she's not an empowered figure whereas in the other version of the myth she she is empowered you know she kills herself to avoid being to avoid losing her independence so it's 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 still not a great ending for her but it's it's the the vibes are very different and in tunisia this myth is more popular than than Virgil's, because Virgil's is Roman propaganda. You know, the, 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 the history of Carthage is the most famous case of history being written by the winners. Um, and Virgil wanted to create this narrative that sets Roman Carthage up as, you know, eternal adversaries. And in Virgil's version, when when Dido dies, she, she curses Rome and she says, we'll, we'll forever be enemies. So, and, you know, so this is all part of the Roman agenda of pitching Rome and Carthage against each other as these historic rivals. So it's it's not um yeah, it's not quite a trustworthy narrative. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go
1: to abc.net.au slash conversations. If you were to go to Carthage today, when one does go to Carthage today, what do you see? Is there anything left of the city that was famously ruined by the Romans, Catherine?
0: Uh, Yes, there's quite a lot actually, but not as much... Punic Carthaginian ruins as you'd like. So I think what a lot of people don't realise when they just think broadly about Carthage is that the city sort of had three major lifespans um, separated by sort of periods of um, des- being deserted. But so I think a lot of people think that when Rome destroyed Carthage, which they did resoundingly, the city didn't come back. But actually, less than a century later, a Roman colony is founded in Carthage um, and it prospers and then it also becomes an important centre of early Christianity. So we have buildings from the Roman period, loads of them actually. We have some very impressive Roman baths, the baths of Antoninus. There's lots of Roman ruins. And then there's also some ruins from later periods of Christian basilicas and such. But there are there are still some Punic ruins because when the Ro and Punic is just sort of it's it's this word that means Carthaginian, essentially, and it's it's a and it has a, and the Punic culture has a lot in common with Phoenician culture because the Phoenicians founded Carthage. Um there are there are some Punic remains. The most famous is the tophet of Carthage, but also because Rome was so thorough in their destruction, in a way. It meant that some of some of the ruins were preserved, so they buried a lot of stuff, um, and that means when it's been excavated, we can still there are still some walls of the original uh, Punic settlement standing. But no, the temples were all were all burned, and uh, the materials used to make Roman ones and such. So
1: there were three famous Punic wars. The first one was a fight that went over twenty years for control of Sicily, which sort of sat between the two empires, such as they were, between Italy and, and, and North Africa. And Rome won that after 23 years. Then there was the second war, which is the really famous one, which was led by, on the Carthaginian side, by Hannibal, the great general mm. who famously brought his army up from his colony in Spain up over the Alps with war elephants over the Indeed. Alps into Italy, which, which gave the Romans the shock of their lives. It, 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 just give me a sense of how the Romans reacted to this existential threat.
0: Oh, um, Carthago de Lenda Est. I mean, they, they reacted extremely and, you know, they they were sort of right to do so because I don't think anyone's come as... I mean, until the actual sackings of Rome by Goths and such later, no one at that point had come so close to really, as you say, an ex, like threatening the very existence of Rome and threatening the destruction of Rome. And historians often look back and say that Hannibal could... His great mistake was not marching on Rome and destroying it when he had the chance. So, they, how did they deal with it? I mean, what's a modern comparison? You know, you might say a modern comparison in some ways is the Treaty of Versailles. It's a sense of this very—they—they they decide they really want to take down once they've once they've been successful militarily. They don't want to sort of make a, a fair truce with Carthage that will ever allow it to rise again. They want to humble it so much that Carthage will never again threaten Rome. And so actually they, you know, in the, Cato famously ends all his speeches with, you know, Carthage must be destroyed, Carthage must be destroyed. Yes, he does that and
1: in every speech in the Senate, doesn't he? Every speech he makes to the Senate, he says this and that about things. And by the way, at the end, Carthage must be destroyed. That's just a matter of course.
0: Yes. And it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a top billing on his agenda. I mean, you know, he gets his wish. And, you know, and Cato visits Carthage in between the wars as part of a de- sort of a delegation. And he's really alarmed that the city has recovered because they're, you know, they're ordered to pay reparations and tribute and dismantle their Navy. There are all these sort of like, you know, conditions to their surrender. And then Cato visits and sees that actually the city seems to be recovering and he sees sort of a hive of activity and happy people prospering. And this, this really rankles him and he thinks this is, this, you know, this is too dangerous. We can't, we can't have this. And this is partly what motivates him to, to campaign so strongly for Carthage to be destroyed. And eventually these terms are offered to Carthage, which are just unacceptable on any level to the Carthaginians. They say, "Yes, we won't kill you all, and you can maintain your sort of, you know, Carthage can still exist, but you have to move." So, you know, as we've talked about, the, the idea of you know, cities are so important in the ancient world. Their historic centres, their religious centres, their political centres, their centres of ideas and the visual impact of the cities on on the identity of the civilizations is so important so you know the temple of Eshmun in in Carthage is so important to the to carthaginian culture and identity and the romans say yeah you've got to take your city down you've got to destroy carthage and you have to move further inland we don't well, this, want you this can... is
1: like my, my, in terms of genghis khan this is like you have yes. to all get out and, and and let us do what we will with your city
0: Yes, well, just more that your city can still exist, but not where it is now, not with these buildings, not with these stones. And so then this is great for your question of what is a city? Is it the people, the stones? Well, for the Carthaginians, the stones are pretty damn important and they're told to get out. And they they eventually decide, no, we can't do this. We're going to stay and fight. And so then this this leads to this monumental sacking of Carthage where the Romans do come and you know the stories of the Carthaginians preparing for this final conquest because they have been forced to dissolve their armies, dismantle their fleets, hand in their weapons and now it's like right no we're not doing this we can't cooperate anymore they're asking too much of us It's it's tantamount to destruction anyway we're going to make a last stand we're going to have a final battle and there's you know there's these stories of women cutting their hair to make rope of even the holy places being turned into factories to create weapons. Everyone, men, women, children, elderly, everyone is pitching in in this this amazing war effort to arm the men of Carthage to repel Rome. And of course, they're not successful. They they've been they've been hobbled by harrowing defeats. So Rome descends on, and they say, "We're not giving in anymore. This is it. We're not going to stand by and have our culture annihilated. We're going to go down fighting." And then there is this this thorough sacking of the city that ends with its total destruction and even once the battle is won they burn the entire city to the ground and then once the fires have raged for days killing squads are sent out among among the burning ruins to just to slaughter anyone who's left in hiding and it's really the breaking of a civilization it's a genocide on a major scale and then the libraries are burned and the books are you know some books are given away to but many are burned yeah, it's a complete destruction of a culture and a people. Yeah,
1: it's one of the great crimes of the of the ancient world, of which there are many such great crimes. Mm. But um, you write also about how eventually it recovered under Roman rule, particularly under the patronage of Julius Caesar, and it mm. was conquered in the 5th century by the much maligned vandals, <laughs> and Indeed. then taken by the Byzantine general Belisarius, then sacked again in the Arab conquest of North Africa in the 7th century. So it's remained an Arab and Berber city to this day. But is there any pride in the Carthaginian past in what is left of Carthage in Tunis today?
0: There is, but it's, I'd say it's quite, it's quite vague and it's quite distant because in Lebanon you will find that a large portion of the population identify very strongly with the Phoenician heritage and believe themselves to be Phoenicians and the direct descendants of the Phoenicians. And this is this is very important to the culture and it's also been sort of appropriated politically and this sort of thing. In Carthage, this is less the case. People know the story of Alyssa; They know... That Hannibal was important. Hannibal and Alyssa were on Tunisian banknotes for a long time. So these are important historic figures, but people don't identify as Carthaginian. People, um, for the most part, Tunisians today identify much more closely with Berber and Arab, much heritage, much more recent historical figures. Uh, Carthage does seem very distant to them, and it's in no small part because Carthage ceased, really did cease to exist at some point. Carthage now is the name of a suburb of the capital of Tunis, which, yes, does occupy the land that historic Carthage once occupied. But this Carthage is, a, is an anomaly in that it hasn't remained a city with this name. Carthage is, as I say now, it's a suburb of Tunis, and Tunis is the Arab city. And the stones of Carthage were used to build, you know, the mosques and the, the streets and the bathhouses of, of Tunis but it hasn't continued ideologically in the same way. And that is in large part due to, to the multiple sackings.
1: But if you dial it back again to that moment in the year 216 BC when the armies of Hannibal are rampaging across the Italian countryside, the Romans are cowering in terror in their cities, you make the point that he made the mistake, most historians say this, that Hannibal made the mistake of never trying to attack Rome directly and do you ever wonder what would have happened if, if Hannibal had woken up one day in his tent in the year 216, somewhere in the Italian countryside, and said, you know what, today we're just going to march on Rome. You know, today we're just going to take Rome. It, it, just the consequences of that decision would mean we live in a completely and totally different world now, wouldn't it?
0: It really would. And I have no idea what it would look like. I mean one of the main things that rome handed down to us today was this major was the spread of christianity rome would later adopt the christian religion and that's that's an ideological shift that we carry today would christianity have succeeded in a, in in a mediterranean ruled by carthage i don't know you know so these are all these questions that would have happened i mean and would carthage have been able to sustain that conquest would carthage have risen to become the to the equivalent of the roman empire uh, it's, it's speculation, but it would, have, it would have been an incredibly different world. I've
1: got time for just one more of your, your fabulous cities, and that's Syracuse, where we started at the beginning. Syracuse, the ancient city on the east coast of Sicily. Now, the Punic Wars that we were talking about then had started for as a contest for the prize of Sicily and its great city of Syracuse. How important was Syracuse as a city in its heyday, when it was a Greek city, before the Romans came barging in, here are these bastard Romans yet again barging in, but tell me how important it was before <laughs> that happened, Catherine.
0: I mean, it was a very important city, um, but not, you know, it would never have had the scale of Rome. Um, and there was there was never quite a Syracusean empire, you know, but the, the tyrants of Syracuse, one, Agathocles, uh, Agathocles did, you know, march on North Africa, and he did conquer bits of Calabria, and so, but it, you know, it didn't have the, the reach, if you like, militaristically, in terms of conquest of other great cities of antiquity. But, you know, it was described as the fairest Greek city by Cicero. Um, and it was very unique, you know, it's very uniquely situated. Syracuse, is at the very centre of the Mediterranean geographically. So it has this very particular location, which has informed its identity and its importance. But I think what I argue is that Syracuse is more important as a place of ideas than necessarily as a political stronghold, and so forth. This is, is, you know, this is, uh, Syracuse is the birthplace of Archimedes, who attempts valiantly to defend Syracuse against the Romans. And this is Beautifully depicted in the new Indiana Jones film.
1: Yes, tell me about um, some of the machines he created to defend Syracuse against the Roman invaders coming in by sea.
0: I mean, this is yeah, disentangling history and myth. It's very hard to say, yeah. but um, it's fun. But, you know, though. it's it, fun. In, uh, it's super fun, and I, I hope it's all true. Um, you know, in theory, he created this amazing heat ray, which sort of focused, you know, the sunlight through lenses and mirrors. To burn ships out of the sea, to sort of send fire, laser jets of concentrated sunlight. Yeah, like kids using
1: a magnifying glass on an ant or something. To burn ants. Yeah, 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 exactly. But he like did this that. with ships. He did this, did this with whole ships, according S- to the story. Scaled
0: up. And my favourite one is actually the claw. Mm. I mean, he had this, this, this. You know, according to his, you know the the chronicles, he had this this device which was sort of like a yeah, like you know, you know those. Um, Those arcade games where you can use like a metal claw to pick up a fluffy animal that drops down the shoe, and you get to keep the animal. He built like a claw like this for ripping ships out of the water, like a sort of iron grappling hook that would be, that could latch onto the prows of ships and like hoik them from the water and then smash them and drop them down again. Well, see, Catherine, I have
1: to ask you, you know, because I think actually all historians are are secret and furtive time travelers in their minds. What would you give to watch that spectacle from the harbour of Syracuse, however many thousand, what, 2,000 years ago or so, or a bit more than that? When it happened, wouldn't that be amazing to witness such a thing?
0: It really would, and that's what Indiana Jones brought us this year. Mm. <laughs> they, they, you know, they they transport Indy back to the Siege of Syracuse, and you know, I'd have loved to have seen that. I'd have been terrified. I'd have been really terrified. I'm, you know, I'm not sure I could have. Uh, Spoken ancient Greek with Archimedes to negotiate mercy as quite as well as quite as well as, Phoebe, as well as Phoebe Waller and Harrison Ford. So I think I'd have, but yeah, it would have been it would have been phenomenal, and I'd love to know the truth of Archimedes' inventions. And if if the heat ray did exist, yeah, I'd love to see that. That would
1: have been amazingly cool, but a bit hard on the old Romans. But maybe they deserved it. <laughs> well, you s- describe this as perhaps your favourite of all these cities. Is it your favourite of all these cities? Are you allowed to have favourites? Are you, are you admitting this shyly if it is indeed true, Catherine?
0: I have different relationships with each of them. I mean, Tyre is the one I've spent the most time in. Syracuse is the nicest place to visit as a tourist, I have to say. It's just beautiful and the food is fantastic and it's easy. It's easy there, although it is becoming monstrously hot. Um, but my, my favourite is, with a very heavy heart, is Antioch, is Antakya, um, and because Ant- Antakya was recently destroyed in the earthquakes of, of, of February this year, um, which is incredibly sobering, and I was caught in one of the earthquakes. Yeah, um, can you tell the story just, of
1: that, place, of how that happened?
0: I, I I've been living in Beirut for a while, and you know, I woke up one night with sort of my shower rail falling down and my my German Shepherd going crazy barking, and I didn't really understand what had happened, but you knew something had happened something in the night. And then you sort of wake up to news reports the next day and you see that there's been this colossal colossal earthquake across southern Turkey and northern Syria. And at first, I didn't hear any reports of Antakya. So I thought, okay, Antakya doesn't seem to be the epicentre. Maybe Antakya hasn't been too badly affected. And then what dawned on me in the days that followed was that actually Antakya had been probably the worst affected city of of them all. Um, And the reason there had been no reports is that, you know, communications were completely down, aid wasn't getting there. And so reports weren't coming out. And then, as people gradually realised what had happened in Antakya, then the the reporters descended. And I waited. Uh, my book was going to press that month. Actually, Twilight Cities was due to go to press in sort of February. And I had to say no, don't print it, because everything's wrong now. I, I just I'd spent a lot of time in Antakya interviewing local people, writing descriptions of the modern city, how you know what heritage stands. And I was like. None of this is true anymore. So then sort of two weeks after the earthquake, I booked to go to sort of, I mean, to get some sort of closure on it myself, but also to see what monuments were standing and what weren't. And then, yes, when I was there, I thought, you know, going two weeks later, the aftershocks will mostly be over and the rescue efforts, I don't want to be getting in the way of rescue efforts and such. So two weeks later, that seems like you know as, as the right time to go but it wasn't because two weeks later another another magnitude 6.4 or something earthquake struck right as i was there it was the most frightening experience of my life and um yeah i've never experienced anything like that and i hope i never do again but what where, was where were you when it's
1: where were you when when it struck Catherine?
0: i was i was in antakia i was just i was driving back to antakia from samandag the st simeon's on the coast um and we were just fueling up just outside the city and the petrol station I was in collapsed and we sort of drove out of it as the the roof was coming down. It was awful. And what was really bizarre, I mean, as a historian was, you know, Antakya, because it is sort of situated on this three tectonic plate boundary, it's been, Antakya has been destroyed again and again by earthquakes over the years. And there was this really dark sentence I'd written in my book, which was, you know, it, it's only a matter of time before another earthquake strikes this region. I didn't, I, you know, I had no comprehension that it was going to happen then. And and also throughout history, we have these descriptions of earthquake survivors writing about the trauma, the destruction of Antioch again and again in these awful earthquakes. You know, we've got Roman emperors scurrying out of windows to get away from it, that sort of thing. Um, and the descriptions are the same, you know, and you suddenly have this connection with these people of the past, this sense of, roaring of thunder coming from the earth from like the sound of thunder but coming from underneath you and this lurching and this and and it's all and the these chronicles descriptions of these earthquakes in this place they're remarkably similar all the way down to the the modern reporting we've had recently so yeah with a heavy heart Antakya and antioch is probably my favorite city because i think you know following all of that I just have the strongest emotional connection to that city. You know, people I people I interviewed died in the earthquake, lost family members, and you're sort of seeing history. You're seeing history repeating itself. So it's it's a very bizarre and uncanny connection. It yeah. appears
1: repeatedly in the Bible. It's a city founded by one of Alexander the Great's generals.
0: Yes, Seleucus Nicator.
1: Yes, in about 300 BC, it was a famous and important city in the Roman Empire. Tell me the role. Antioch had, Antakya, as it is today, Antioch had in the fostering of Christianity in its earliest years.
0: A really interesting role, actually. It's actually, according to the Bible, it's the place where Christians first identified themselves by that term as Christians. And it had a sort of a secretive... Community of practicing Christians during the Roman Empire. It was it was a hub, and you know, Saint Paul preached there and spent time there, as did Saint Peter, and there were lots of sort of uh, theological debates that took place there. But it was a gathering point for early Christians, and it was where it was a place where the religion was, you know, first preached. That you know, the Roman pagans, and it got a lot of traction. And in the days of the of early Christianity, the Christians would meet to worship and to talk in caves around the city because obviously they were persecuted within the Roman metropolis. And some of these caves you can still visit today. And, you know, one of the most famous ones is this. It's known as the Cave Church of St. Peter. Okay, it's unlikely, you know, that that provenance is unclear because if we look at medieval texts from the Crusaders, they don't make a big song and dance about this, which they would do if if that if it was held to be the place where st peter preached at that time and then in later sources it's called the cave church of st john but if you visit this cave in the hills outside antioch which i did you can see that there's byzantine flooring there you can see that this is absolutely a place of christian worship that goes back centuries and what how far exactly it's unclear but it's completely plausible that it was a meeting point of the early christians it's very well hidden and it's a big you know it's a big roomy cave with this ancient altar and it's now, you know, it's a place. It's a UNESCO site now, but it's also a place of worship. They they hold, I think, they I think they hold an Easter mass there each year now.
1: And what state was this cave in when you visited it after? Well, that the was
0: that was what was so moving because it was very difficult to get into Antakya because everything was collapsed. You really can't imagine it. There are no roads because all the buildings collapsed into the roads. And so, the first place that I was able to visit was the cave church because it's in the hills outside, and. Miraculously, not miraculously, it's it survived completely intact. Like I went in, and it was exactly as it had been. It's got this facade on the outside; there wasn't even a crack. Like all the buildings near it are down, that that facade was in perfect condition, and inside the altar is in perfect condition. There's a statue of Saint Peter, sort of semi precariously perched on the wall, and it's not even fallen. So it was in perfect condition. That was incredibly moving. I sort of cried when I went in there. Um, because I mean, but that was just the emotion of be- seeing the rest of the city destroyed. But it was in perfect condition. And there's something, you know, I spoke to a, a, histo- a very, you know, eminent historian who's specialised much more than me in the history of Antakia, Andrea De Giorgi, and he said, he said that that this cave church is actually built directly into a fault. I don't know exactly what that means, but it's, you know, the the part of the mountain that it's built into is sort of directly connected to, I don't know, the mechanisms of earthquakes. I don't understand. And it's for that reason that it's survived pretty much perfectly all these centuries. So, you know, all the temples built by the Romans in Antioch, they were destroyed in earthquakes, various points. You know, the geography has changed so many time be- times because of these earthquakes. But this cave church has remarkably stayed preserved this whole time.
1: Oh, God, and people would draw religious conclusions from that because it's uh, this sanctuary from the vast tectonic... Forces that are are arrayed around it.
0: It is, and it's it's hard to it's hard for me because you know why one of the some of the most upsetting things was the destruction of the religious buildings in Antakya. So it did have this amazing Greek Orthodox church that was completely destroyed. The synagogue, uh, the synagogue survived actually. There was there's been a Jewish community in in Antakya continuously. Um, The synagogue was preserved, but so you know so many mosques were destroyed, so many churches were destroyed. But yes, this cave church the oldest site of Christian worship in that region has has remained completely intact and it is remarkable it is remarkable
1: it fell under muslim rule in the 7th century then it was conquered by christian crusader knights from europe it was a crusader state for around 200 years or so and then reconquered after uh, by the mamluks and on and on it goes and pulled down by the mamluks and I, I just wonder if it's a place is it is it, you know if in you know, mexico city is a city that's built on top of the old aztec capital tenochtitlan and you can see the foundation stones of that aztec city on some of the Spanish buildings that were built on top of it, have they done that in a place like Antioch, which has been pulled down by by people and by earthquakes again and again? Do they sort of recycle the stones and bricks again and again and again?
0: You know, I guess that they do. I think probably not on the same... You know, looking at the city of Antakya, I have to say, beautiful as it is, or certainly was, beautiful as it was... Um, you didn't get the same impressions that you did so clearly in Tunis and in Tyre that these are the recycled zones of antiquity. So it's hard to say to what extent, but it's certainly been built over. And I think I think because of the earthquake nature, actually, it's been abandoned for long periods of time between these disasters. So I don't think there's this direct recycling and use of spolia happening, um, but so but this certainly has been built over. Um, and this is what's amazing, you know. They were building this new hotel in Antakya recently, and they discovered this amazing spread of beautifully preserved Roman mosaics as they were digging the foundations. So, you know, beneath Antakya there are layers and layers of history to be discovered. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do that when there's a modern city uh, built over the top.
1: But. I, yeah. think, I think, Catherine, to tell this story, it's the case of in some ways being ke- be careful of what you ask for because I think the, the fascination of, of some of these places, the mystique of these cities you've visited, is that you get that poignant sense of impermanence from them. They were great and majestic places that poets and historians in the ancient world raved about once and now they are what, what they are and they impart this great sense of the impermanence of great power and fragility and I suppose that's the thing you embark upon when you embark upon writing a book like this. And then, then Antakya really shows you what this means, really up close, right, right while you're right in the middle of the place. Do you think about that, I wonder?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's all... This whole book project has been sort of an exercise in Ozymandias. I mean, looking at the the collapse of what's great and the transitory nature of of greatness and of power... Um, and you see these great empires sort of humbled to dust, and it's sort of with Tyre. It's it's so it's bizarre because as you know, we have this Ezekiel prophecy of you know Ezekiel likens Tyre to a treasure ship careening towards wreckage, and he says, "Oh Tyre, I will cast down thy beauty." And and he you know he says and this this city which is the epitome of greatness, of grandeur, of splendor in antiquity. He says, "I will you know your walls will be broken down." And Tyre will become a place just where fishermen spread their nets over bare rock. And it's it's bizarre and it's prescient because that is exactly what did happen to Tyre. For over 100 years it was only sort of an uninhabited fishing village. And the great walls of Tyre were cast down into the waves and they still are. So... Yeah, this whole book has been a reflection on that, um, and this, these life cycles, and then you know, wondering what will become become of our great cities and our civilizations. Because, you know, the Tyrians never saw this coming, and you know, and yeah, it's just the cyclical nature of history, and actually, that we are, you know, this is just this is just a moment in history. Um, and that our great buildings may one day be ruins. But I, this is something that bothers me a little bit when I look at modern building techniques. They're not going to make as picturesque ruins as those of antiquity. It's, you know, <laughs> we don't build like we used to, so it's it's just going to be a right mess of sort of iron rods and concrete blocks.
1: But... If, if people are still around a thousand years from now, which who knows, they walk around amongst the ruins of 21st century civilization and go, God, look at the holes these people lived in. Isn't that terrible? Yeah, aren't yuck. That? yuck. Well, I mean,
0: the, it's but it is. It's also modern building techniques. That's just something slightly more chaotic and horrible because you uh-huh. know modern buildings. I mean, I saw this in the aftermath of the earthquake and stuff. You know, it, they don't. Um, it's not solid blocks of marble that break and you know whatever. It's it's. It's dodgy concrete with, with metal rods through it. It's not, it's not... They don't make... Modern buildings don't make for pretty ruins, I would, I would say, yeah.
1: Catherine, it's completely fascinating. Thank you so much for taking us on this tour of these lost cities of the Mediterranean. It's been such a lovely thing to talk to you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been great. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations
1: with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au conversations.